What's up, everybody? Happy Monday. I hope this finds you in your power and stepping into your highest greatness to venture off into this week to set the tone for what this week is going to be about. Crazy times, y'all. The election seems to have wrapped up one way or another. Biden gave his victory speech along with Kamala. Um, Trump seems to be fighting it in some way, one way or another. I'm not even sure what that means exactly. A lot of legal jargon being thrown around, a lot of Twitter threats, etc. If you're happy today, I'm happy for you. If you're pissed off today, I think that's probably a pretty understandable place to be as well, as long as you are channeling that into something positive. Don't let that fester, y'all. Get a, get a good workout in today. Hit some push-ups. Do some breathing exercises. And get yourself back to center. Because as I... As is still true. And as I always say. And I absolutely believe. The world needs you. And the world needs you in your highest greatness. So it doesn't really matter who our president is. Or what's going on in, in the external world. We got to control what we can control. And we got to do what we got to do to raise each other up, to lift ourselves up, to live in our highest greatness, to accomplish our mission that we have here on this planet in this lifetime. Never lose sight of that. That is the most important thing. So that being said, um, my thoughts on it all are summed up in this quote that I posted earlier today on social media. It was something Joe Rogan retweeted, and then my buddy Prime Hall actually posted it, but it's from this guy, Zuby, Zuby Music. I'm not sure if any of you follow him or not, but I thought this was the perfect way to sum it all up. Imagine if people got as hyped about their own mental, physical, spiritual, financial, and relational development as they do presidential elections. The world would actually become a much better place immediately. So, if you're curious where I'm at, that's basically where I'm at. I think if we spent a little less time being worried about who the president was and a little more time looking in the mirror and acknowledging who we are and the truth of ourselves, we'd be doing a whole lot more good than we currently are. So, something to think about. Um, Great episode today. Uh, Really a a fantastic conversation. This was recorded pre-election, but the information in it is very pertinent to what's happening now and what will continue to unfold and be shown to us. Uh, Corruption in media, um, the life of an artist, how to be an artist in 2020, how to create your work and put it out there and find the proper channels and distribution for that work. Uh, expressing yourself, etc. We dive into consciousness, acting, spirituality. Uh, Sebastian Siegel is a fucking awesome dude. I had such a ball. He is a filmmaker. He is a director, a writer. He's got a new film coming out called Grace and Grit, which is an adaptation he did of the Ken Wilber novel. Ken Wilber is one of the the great spiritual philosophers 
in American history. And uh, he's alive today. He's written a, a ton of books. I'm currently on A Brief History of Everything, which I highly recommend. Um, so it was a fantastic conversation. Very uplifting. I felt like even though I had just met this guy for the first time, I talk about how it feels like I've known him for a lifetime. Do you ever feel like that? You meet people for the first time ever, but you feel like you've known them forever. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? It's wonderful. It's a wonderful part of the magic of life. So that being said, everybody, remember, if you're looking for fantastic coffee, head over to invadercoffee.com. Use code the ebb and flow, all one word, all lowercase for 15% off your next order of organic, low acidity, air roasted, veteran owned coffee that is fantastic, bold and beautiful. I love it. I look forward to it every day. Um, also, finally, the greatest way you can show support for me and this show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it on whatever platform you listen to it on, as well as share it with your friends and family. If a particular episode rings true for you and you feel like someone you know might resonate with it, please share it with them. Word of mouth is one of the greatest ways to amplify the reach of this this podcast or any other. So that being said, sending you nothing but love, power, and positivity on this Monday to carry you through. And I hope to find you standing in your highest greatness. Lots of love to you all out there. Enjoy this one. Peace. You have unlocked the eternal link to internal source. The key of imagination. Your admission. Access to the enlightened dimension. The gateway at the junction of darkness and light. The place at which the chaos of our conditioned frame of mind give way to a life in constant flux. Only to be mastered through vigilant discipline. Peaceful times may come. Testing times may go. This is the ebb and flow. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Ebb and Flow podcast. I'm your host, Evan Britton. I hope you guys are hanging tough out there. Very excited to be with you this afternoon with an incredible guest, writer, director, producer, Sebastian Siegel. The energy is electric in here, dude. I really appreciate you coming in. The first time meeting you in person, it feels like I've known you for a lifetime already. Uh, His new movie, Grace and Grit, an adaptation of the incredible Ken Wilber novel, is coming out later this year. A little little hit from the great and powerful John Mackey of Whole Foods. Like the book, it's adapted from this film is brilliant. Grace and Grit will shake you and maybe even awaken you in some way. This movie is a must-see, especially for anyone interested in love or consciousness. That's what we're all about here, brother. Thanks. Welcome to the show, man. It's good to be here. Dude, so, I mean, just coming in off the elevator, we were firing on all cylinders here. Um, and I was rap- trying to wrap my head around what this conversation was was going to be about. I had a lot of thoughts on acting, on acting and consciousness. You know, I have a deep lineage of acting in my family my grandmother is Estelle Parsons 
uh, Academy Award winning actress and current Broadway actress. Uh, and my aunt, Martha Gaiman, is very much a very well-respected acting coach in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, acting has always been one of my favorite art forms. Um, and just to begin with this, I, I don't know, I felt like I needed to say this or wanted to say this, maybe for my audience more than for you, but, you know, they come from the actor's studio in New York. It's very theatrically based. Stanislavski, Lee Strasberg. Um, and these guys, it's interesting to me spending time in acting classes where you realize how much of an alchemy acting is and the art of acting and directing and creating through using your body as the physical instrument to create a scene or to create, evoke emotions from your audience and create a, an atmosphere. Um, so I'm curious, you are such a, you're a powerhouse of energy, dude. Like you're jacked. You're fucking, your energy is off the charts. You've got this brilliant smile. Your social media, I have to say, is, is totally in line with everything I'm all about because it's just positivity, good energy, love, compassion, uh, expanding the global consciousness in any way you can. So I don't know. There's no question there, but... Just as a, I wanted to open it up to you with that and where I'm coming from and share with you my experience in acting and, and my love for the, the art of acting. Mm. Mm. I, <clears throat> your intuition's right on point. And um, my father's a professor of comparative religions. Uh, and so when I was a kid, whoa. he was always in India and India was his specialty. And so as a kid, I would read those comics, Ganesha and Vishnu and mm. Rama and Shiva, etc. And I think that retrospectively, that iconography of all of these Indian gods, how they were ultimately avatars of one another. Mm. That they were living through one another, had an impact on me subconsciously. So that later, when I developed an interest in theater and plays as a kid at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, I found that going into that space, there is this unspoken agreement that we're going to allow each other to get to know ourselves through one another. In other words, that we make this commitment by walking on a stage or going into a theater, as a, even as a kid, mm. that says whatever you have inside that you want to get in touch with, this angst, this joy, this eroticism, this fear, this courage, this rage, this desire to connect, I'm going to hold that space for you. And you're going to hold that space for me. And we're going to get to discover these facets and these terrains within ourselves through one another. And so I found that compelling. And I think that your intuition in terms of speaking to that, um, acting and, and what's really going on in the world, where is that? And I think about its relationship with, uh, one, its relationship with psychology. Like uh, mm, yes, um, Fritz Perls, who uh, was the founder of Gestalt, was very interested in theater and very interested in acting. And a lot of those exercises that he used, that were used in theater, whether mirroring or, or the chair, he developed 
and used in psychology. That there was this practice, in other words, of taking on the perspective of the other, which is the root exercise of compassion, mm. being able to identify and feel the pain or the joy or the elation, right, of the other. And on a fundamental level, this is the requisite to any solution that we're seeking, whether it's in a marriage and a friendship in a society. Mm-hmm. And we think about what's really going on right now in the world. On a more esoteric level, I think that acting is interesting because if you think about what it is to be God, let's say, or all of spirit, mm. it, it is really immersing that sense of identity within every single sentient being. Right? In other words, there was, I was having this conversation with this guy, very, very bright guy, Eugene Poteshkin, who translates all of Ken Wilber's books into Russian. Oh, nice. This guy's fluent in English, fluent in Russian, he's translating all ah. of Ken's books. So this is a really bright guy. And he reaches out to me one day and he says, you know, this is like, the, the actor is the ultimate job. He says, if God had a choice to do anything, that's, mm. that's ultimately what God's doing. Totally. Right. Totally, dude. That he's showing, that, that this electricity is showing up through every individual simultaneously. It's depicted to some degree. Well, on that point, sorry, not to cut you off, but on that point, this approach to acting or this understanding of acting as this expression of your inner life, it adds such a, all of a sudden I remember having this, this realization in acting classes coming out of football where everything is just like smash the fucker in front of you, you know, coming into acting and seeing this this art form and how you unfold it in a way that's authentic for someone to watch. It's like, that's what life is all about. Like, can you express your inner life out into the world as efficiently as possible? You know, and that's like you're saying, that's, that's godlike, that's divine to be able to do that. So go ahead. I just I I think if every kid could have some sort of experience um, in theater and in that, you know, if every school could adapt that as mandatory, I think especially for today, the way that we're interacting from a distance, that uh, people become less and less aware and uh, of sentience. You know, like, I don't know, it was Mike Tyson or something was saying, like, like in a social media, like, no one's got any proper attitude. Anymore. Yeah. You, there was things you would never say in person that all of a sudden people are saying online. Like, if you in person, you get knocked out if yeah. you say that, right? Yeah. You know, and the solution to that is this, this experiential uh, process of holding the other as ourself, of being able to identify what it is to be sentient. Because people are so reactive and impulsive yeah. right now online because we're able to connect with everyone all over the world. Um, that they're not th- taking a certain amount of integrity. And I appreciate that you brought up social media because I think about I'm not impulsive. I'm good for posting something once a week, mm. maybe twice a week. Yeah. And I think through it like you do. And I have great respect and appreciation for what you are doing as well. And, and there, are, there are a number of people around yeah. the world who are doing it, really saying, look, if I'm going to represent something and make a statement, I'm going to speak it from my heart and think it through. Yes. That's the least we can do to show up. Yeah, right? we, if we're gonna walk out the house, we'll, let's comb our hair, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I might as well do the same thing with my words. Definitely, man. There's so much vitriol and fucking nonsense out there. 
you know. You know, Charles Darwin even talks about the highest moral uh, 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 requisite of a society is something to that degree of of controlling our own thoughts, Mm. of having that personal responsibility. And also that the greatest, uh, you know, the height of, 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 of something to aspire to for as a mechanism for survival that Darwin describes is love for all other beings. Mm. And he's, this is a guy who's a scientist right. only, yeah. you know, and he's saying that. Yeah. And the number of people who are not paying attention to that, who are just saying, uh, I feel this thing. And so my feelings are justified, mm. you know, but I'm not caring enough to think them through before I form them and mix them into this world. That's just totally a responsibility. So bravo, Mike Tyson. <laughs> we, need, we need him knocking more people no out. Doubt, you know? No doubt. No doubt. Know. Love Mike. And yeah, that's so true. And he's important. It's so important, though, you know, in this weird time we find ourselves in, man. And it seems as though, you know, with this, the current climate, and the atmosphere of the human species of human consciousness where, you know, the powers that be are driving us into isolation, driving us behind our screens, driving us into the digital realm. And it's exacerbating this bad programming, you know, where, cause I, <clears throat> I went and saw this guy, Dr. Harhari, Kalsa yesterday, who has this incredible healing center out in West LA. And he put me through this thing called the cyber scan and the cyber scan. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's a German medical device in the U S it's, it's almost impossible to get your hands on one of these because it's deemed, you know, it's not, uh, approved by the big pharma mafia. Um, but so this cyber scan, you put your hand on this machine. It's about the size of this, maybe a little bit bigger. You put your hand on it, and it does a whole scan of your physiological and energetic bodies. So your energy field that takes a whole thing and does a fucking diagnostic readout that was so on point that it blew my mind. And he starts reading me this whole thing, and it does a whole psych evaluation as well. And literally everything he said, I hadn't told him anything. I didn't fill out a form. I didn't do anything. And this thing was giving me a full diagnostics report of literally my entire medical history. And then right here where I was yesterday in the current moment. And part of my psyche reading was, um, it was talking about how sensitive emotionally I am, which is very true. You know, I've always been very sensitive and I feel I've, I've been, you know, during this time of deep introspection. I mean, I've always been that way, but I think coronavirus has brought me deeper into the cave, as it were, to examine myself and reflect on who I am and what my purpose is here on this planet in this lifetime. And I've gotten, you know... I've been having conversations with my wife where I'm like, I don't know if people feel feelings as deeply as I do, or if I experience emotions as heavily as other people do. And so what I realized around that and what that means to me, and to bring it back to this point of this sort of unbridled uh, spewing of 
emotion and feeling into the the internet into social media into the digital realm is that you know for me much of my journey has been about putting a structure around all of these feelings and emotions so that I can use them in the most positive way possible you know because it's great to have these depths of feeling it's great to feel happiness to feel uh, joy to feel grief to feel sadness to feel anger and rage like these are all aspects of us that we can never run away from but it's a matter of it's like going into the dojo or into the gym to train and to sculpt your physical body but you also have to remember to sculpt your mind and to sculpt your emotional body as well you know so that you can have some control over all of that which i think no one really does or very few people are willing to put the work in in this day and age because frankly i mean american culture in particular i've you know it feels as though there's no guidance there's no training there's no um architecture for any of this for being a human at the end of the day right <laughs> i mean you know, so we're all just functioning off of this weird programming of the American dream and the American ethos, which is, you know, make as much money as you can, be successful, become a celebrity, get famous, you know, and then you're deemed a success or whatever, you know, and there's no real attention to the fundamental parts of being a human which mm -hmm. is all of this internal shit you know mm -hmm. why do we have so much mental health issues mm -hmm. and drug addiction in our country i just finished reading this book power vs. force mm -hmm. and you know he talks about in there how the drug addicts issue is in the technique of because we're all seeking a spiritual experience it's just about changing how you're doing it. The aspiration is correct. We all need to have that spiritual experience. But in America, at least in modern, this, this thing that we find ourselves in, whatever the fuck this is called, we've totally tried to push spirituality and consciousness to the wayside, right? So that it's like, that's not, no, no, that doesn't fit into this materialist world that we're all striving to succeed in and it's killing us mm. you know it's driving us apart it's it's fucking destroying us yeah and it's and it's um it's getting lip service that it's it's communicated what you said about the dangers of technological isolation yeah right that people want to present especially now a um, posture mm. more than hold mm. a sense of character and identity. Mm. Because holding a sense of character and identity means being disliked, means being uncomfortable, right? That any kind of breakthrough, any kind of spiritual practice, breakthrough happens in solitude, happens in disagreeing, happens in, in that sort of discomfort. That's where the growth is. Whereas yes. right now people use this technological avatar they use their social media yes. as a means to an end, to gain something, which means by intrinsically going along with what's popular. It was interesting because, um, and I don't want to go too 
you know, I don't want to go too far down on a tangent, yeah, politically, but I thought it was, it was, hey. it was very interesting um, when uh, um, this woman who resigned from the New York Times. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, just recently. Yeah, yes. and, and um, her resignation letter, essentially she was saying, and politics aside, she was saying really something about media, right. which was what was powerful that she had worked for this publication, which was a global publication that people will read the New York Times like they will read the Moscow Times or the LA Times. Right. Or the more, not the LA Times so much, but yeah. the, the Financial Times or the, the Economist. Or yes, the New York Times is a staple. You know, and she was saying that... Or has been. Leading up to the... And she's a Jewish, liberal, white woman in America. So she's saying that leading up to the election in 2016... Essentially, the New York Times was saying, this guy has no shot of being president. This is who the president is going to be. Mm. That's just the reality. So they're projecting that out into the world. So the Uh world says, oh, well, that's what's going on in America. (laughs) And she said that the night after the election, she, she thought, my God, we are so out of touch. Like it or not. We are out of touch with what is really going on in Mm. America. Mm. And that's dangerous because that by nature is no longer journalism. Journalism means it's always going to be skewed one way or the other with some sort of subjectivism. But the job of a journalist is to be as objective as possible. To say, this is what's going on, whether you like it or not. Now, comment on this, respond to this. Whereas she said what was occurring at the New York Times is they were saying, hey, this is what's popular. Let's give people what they want. We are responding to what people want versus telling them this is what's occurring. You can respond to what's occurring. In other words, we're no longer providing a service. We're providing entertainment. Right. And, you know, 25 years ago, 35 years ago, news was 70, 80% news and 20% entertainment. Now it's 80% entertainment, 20% news. It's really hard to, you know, decipher. So then, to put a button on that, she stayed with the New York Times for the last few years and then she just resigned uh, a couple months ago because she said that more and more the New York Times was responding to Twitter and saying this is what our audience wants let's just give them what they want uh-huh. and the sad part about it is that I used to read that mm. paper but I, I can't read it anymore yeah not because I'm for or against their thoughts right but because I can't trust it exactly you know I want a map of the world that shows an accurate description of where the continents are if I'm going to sail from one continent to another right <laughs> that's the job of journalism <laughs> yes. is to give us that terrain what is going on culturally and we uh, cannot depend any longer on these major uh, news stations because they are so beholden to deliver uh content that their constituents want Mm. i think yeah i think that's a really important issue that's happening man barry weiss is the journalist yes i read that my brother sent me that um I don't know. I can't watch mainstream media. I can't. I can't mm. even get into it mm. because it f- looks and feels so propagandized mm. at this point. To the point, like you were saying, where I don't even know what's true. I don't know what's real anymore. Like you said, I think that's such an important point to say. You know, news and media 25, 20, 25 years ago was something, it was, it was a compass of, you know, where's north? And you could point to that and say, okay, this is what's happening in the world. This is where we're at. 
objectively speaking, like it or not, good or bad, this is it. Like, this is where we are. Now it's so corporatized and so dogmatic and so uh, polarized that it's impossible to get a, a, a realistic view of anything happening in the world. You know, I'd like to make a prediction, and I think that going in that direction, a lot of the uh, other outlets are... Uh, uh, destroying themselves by following that mandate. Like they've seen what's occurring with these newspapers that are all folding. Yeah. Right. And yet if you go on Twitter at some juncture, they're going to write themselves off to a niche Uh audience. Yeah. Right. And Twitter is something that I've used as a, I don't put out a lot of things there, Uh but it's valuable to look and see what someone specifically is saying, you know, in any kind of, you know, you know, to just to get a sense, all right, this person in any kind of media or, you know, philanthropy or politics or whatever the thing is, music, et cetera, what do they say? You can go straight to the source and that's the value of it. But when they start using algorithms to censor. <laughs> right, right. That's it. I mean, I was, it was interesting. What are we, where are we? Yeah, because I was like, you know, as someone who is, and, and I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Mm. Right. And so I have supported politicians on all sides. Yeah. And uh, generally I go less for policy and more just for the individual. Uh-huh. Yeah? And but I want to know what's going on out there on all sides. I'm uh-huh. not. Un- no message makes me uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Right? And what I noticed is that in the last few months, they were uh, <laughs> they were censoring the president of the United States so aggressively yeah. that like him or not, you just don't what it's causing people who both adore him and people who hate him, they're having to go directly to him yeah. to figure out what he's saying because Twitter is filtering him so aggressively. Mm-hmm. So that's a service against what they want by filtering yeah. him for the people who adore him because it's making him even more and more in control of media. Yeah. And it's a disservice to the people who dislike him because, or it's a service maybe to the people who dislike him because they're now having to go directly to him and watch the, you know, it's, what is this guy really saying? You yes. know, like they're having to click on the... I can't tell you how many friends are like, I'm watching the presidential <laughs> briefings now, yeah, dude. Yeah, totally, because the news is catering, is, is, is yes. him so much, I've done the same thing. And it's not, again, it's not about liking or not liking no. this guy. It's about saying, I want to understand what is going on. Yeah. Whether I vote for this, whether I voted for this person or supported this person or not, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or, or uh, Donald Trump, the president of the United States is, is, was elected. Mm-hmm. I want to know what that person is saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. You know? And I think that that is you know, this, the control. Uh, and I think that you know, the crux of what we're talking about is less political and more about media. Mm. You know, and the danger of the control of media. When we look at other countries, whether we look at Nazi Germany or we look at communist China, we're seeing oh. the same thing. And that is ultimately the control of media. And yeah. I think that whatever people believe uh, or whatever what other ideologies people aspire to whether they're ultra conservative or ultra liberal on both extremes nobody wants control of the media unless they're the ones doing the controlling mm. you know and that's what's really that's the moment that's really scary at this juncture yes right? yes god dude that's so it's so important to talk about how i mean how did we get here a and then b how do you begin to unravel that or get back to some semblance of balance or 
objectivity. What like what is media going to look like in <laughs> two years? I was going to say five years or ten years, but fuck, mm. I mean, who knows if the country will be around in five years or ten years? That talking head song. How did I get here? Yeah, <laughs> this is not my beautiful wife. Yeah, exactly. This is not my beautiful house. How the fuck did we get here, man? You know, it's interesting. I, I look at this. Um, uh, there's that great uh, clip of uh, JFK Jr. in 1999 talking mm. about how obviously his father is JFK. He's a you know Democrat. He's a lifelong Democrat. I've been to that house, you know, in in, in Hyannisport. And, uh, and That's cool. I, yeah, and it's and it's an important part of American history. It's an important chapter in American history. And but to hear him say, I have concerns that. We are, and this is in 1999, wow. JFK Jr., taking money from China to put satellites into space. And that concerns me, that, that, that money from China is coming into the Democratic Party. That, that's a concern for me. He's saying that, his words, 1999. Wow. And he says, you know, because what happens next if we allow this, right? It's like you allow your son to, 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 to cuss a little bit, all right? It's fine. You allow him to... Take something one time. Next thing, he slaps somebody. Next, thing, or where do you draw the line? Right, right. right. You know how do we draw the line? You know? Yeah, um, the slippery slope. Slippery slope. And I think that's what's occurred. Uh. Yeah, because I, I I think that the you know the hijacking of ideologies that have a sincere uh, and hopeful message that we're able to you know people uh, institutions are able to uh, create complicity. Uh, mm-hmm. And corruption by only we only you don't need so much uh, like to 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 fix a you know to to influence yeah you uh, don't uh, you know a movement like I yeah if you think about the way a football game is fixed right and I lean away from conspiracy ideas conspiracy would be that there's a small group of individuals who are completely controlling everything so I don't I don't subscribe to that at all. Mm. But every football game, to some degree, is being fixed in some way, mm. right? On both sides. You know, mm. everyone's trying to stack the deck and take as much advantage as possible. Mm. So if you're trying to fix a game, you don't have to control the whole game. You only have to find the few players. a few players and say, hey, if you make a fumble, mm. leave 100 grand at your house. Here's 10 grand in advance. I don't want you to, but just if that should go bad, I know you're retiring this season. You know, if that should happen, I just want you to know we're here for you. If you have that with, you know, one referee, one kicker, one, you know, mm. you know, all the, wh- wh- whoever you can find on that, you know, you find, you know, you find the weak link. Somebody's going to retire. They're only paid, you know, the lowest paid person. Maybe they're going to snap the ball. Mm. Maybe they're, you know, they're having a rough time. Maybe, you know, and that's occurring on both sides. So the game is never fixed entirely. It's never completely controlled. It can go right, either right. way until the last moment. Mm. But the stacking of the deck on both sides you know, around an election, we're talking about billions of dollars. Yeah. You know, we're talking about even upwards, like numbers we've never seen before. Mm. Um, what's scary now is the metrics because you know, these metrics are so hard to comprehend, these numbers. We think about, everybody has a sense about what a million dollars will do, yeah. right? But a billion dollars, right? And just to put a, an analogous perspective on that, a million dollars, let's convert it into seconds. A million seconds from now is 11 days from now, right? Uh-huh. So a billion, people think, all right, a million, a billion, it's, a, it's a, that, all right, it's not that much more. A billion seconds, right, is 31 years from now. 
That's how big that jump is. And then we talk about we printed $3 trillion. A trillion seconds from now is 31,000 years from now. Right, so we think about dollars now, a million dollars. And it used to be we're funding something for $50 million, $100 right. million. Now it's only in the billions. Yeah. It's a you billion dollars. With yeah. a million you, dollars you know, we're now. talking about you know, tr- $3 trillion. So you're talking about what are the influences on a global scale? Mm. What are the influences on global scale? What are the, who are the businesses that yeah. exist in different countries? And what do those businesses have to benefit from if this person is elected or that person is elected? Mm. As a product of commerce, any entity that is going to lose a billion or a 10 billion or a hundred billion because of an election will absolutely reinvest half of that to, to see the person that the they want elected elected. Yeah. yeah. And then I think that the problem comes, <laughs> right? And I think that's just a product, but that, that's been happening throughout history. So you far. just blew my mind not, with the dollars to seconds, right? Dude. So then the, the danger is, though, right, is the righteousness of American media. Like, yeah. we know we're trying to influence who the leader of every country is. Like, you can't put it over on American people like so-and-so's involved in our election. Of course, if you had the choice of who was going to move into the house next to you, mm. you would make that choice, yeah. right? And we are notorious for putting leaders into power. Mm, we are notorious yeah. for influencing it. So, of course, the rest of the world wants to influence us as well. Mm. You know? And I think that the danger in media is to say, you know, I, I think when, when oftentimes when people are in politics for so long, they get out of touch with what is occurring in the streets, with what's really happening. Yeah. You know, they're depending only on studies to uh-huh. influence things. And so they start to say things like, oh, well, you know, this is, you know... Uh, you know, they're trying to influence our election or we shouldn't influence it. It's absolutely, this is the game, you know, since, you know, you know, you're, as, as a kid, you ever play that game Risk? Yeah. You know, and you look at those, yeah. you look at the, <laughs> you yeah. know, the game is dominate these different countries and it's always occurring, yeah? Yeah. It's always occurring. Dude. We have to be open to what is going on and saying, listen, there's always going to be challenges. Yeah, but mm. the, the beauty of living in this country is is about is about freedom and, and is about voting and is about election, whether I like it or not, mm. right? It doesn't matter who's, whoever, all the presidents who've been presidents since I've been alive, whether I like them or agree with them or not, I support them because I support being in this country. Mm. In other words, the invisible, uh, uh, you know, the, the disconnect happens when people say, this could never have happened. This is so ridiculous. This is mm. unacceptable on every level. Mm. Fine. Not how do you change it, but why did it happen? Right. Who is so for this then, if that's the case, right? Mm. In other words, what is it that we are so out of touch with? Uh-huh. Right? Does that belief or that sort of fundamental American operating system of supporting your president whoever that may be because you support what america is and what it stands for does that get diluted or obstructed by corporate influence yeah you know because to me Whoever, 
I, I totally, I, I agree with you that, and, and I don't know. I actually, I don't know because I don't know. I think that they're the elite class of humans on this planet have been since the beginning of time doing everything they can to manipulate and control the rest of the humans to consume or do work for them. It's, it's, I don't know. I feel like that is since the dawn of man. That's been happening. You know, there's been a monkey at the top who's been convincing a monkey at the bottom, you should do this because it's good for you, but really it's helping them, you know, and it's helping them get out of do, doing work or whatever it is. Um, and <clears throat> so that being said, with the current situation and this exponential rise or the very interesting um, adulteration of our systems. To me, a few things are clear within that. One, the human spirit is inconquerable. No matter what a human being is put through, adversity, complications, stress, etc., we have the ability to overcome it. And we've been doing that. We've been fucking up the plans of the dark brotherhood since forever, I believe. So in that, that being said, this country was founded on such powerful principles. And it was founded on such deep, intrinsic human truths to the human spirit. Like goes beyond physicality into spirituality and into... Uh, our destiny as humans, you know, man's humans right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and all of the, the structuring of our constitution and how everything was put in place to secure these freedoms and this, this free life that we enjoy now. To me, that overrides or, or what I'm sensing and what you came in saying the resistance is real, you know, of no matter what gets thrown at us, I believe those principles and those sort those laws of American understanding will shine through and take us through whatever adversity comes our way through this whole thing. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's written into the um, fabric of, yes. of, of, of America. I'm born in England. I have a British passport. I love living here. I appreciate it enormously. Um, to tap on something first that you said about the influence of big companies in politics. Every president since Jimmy Carter is probably the only president to leave office not wealthy. Huh. Like, this is a, like him or not, this is uh -huh. amazingly brilliant guy. Jimmy Carter? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, uh -huh. he's such an intelligent and compassionate man. Uh -huh. Like him or not, as a president, yeah. amazing human being. You know, and I read his book, and he talks so much about his struggle as a president to be both a president and a devout Christian. Uh -huh. And he talks about that conflict, you know, and I was really impressed by that, yeah? 
But since him, every president has essentially left office with a lot of money. So you look at like the Clintons of a couple hundred million dollars, right? Yeah. And you look at the you know Obamas, and you look at, you know I'm sure Trump is making a lot of money. So all of these presidents, you know, Bush <laughs> made a lot of money. So you're saying, well, if they're president and they're getting paid you know 400 grand a year, why are they making 300 million? Right, Where does that right. come from? So, How are they so, coming out? Okay, so I'm okay with that, and uh-huh. I think most people are okay with that. What's not okay is if we're selling the soil to other countries. Mm. And that is unacceptable. And I think that's the juncture that we're at, that the globe has mm. become, you know, because of just the globalism of business, mm-hmm. that when we're selling out to other countries, you know, when we are selling out to business and of other countries, then we get a real, this is a really dangerous, dangerous thing. You know, we look back at the... Um, American Revolution, what you're talking about, about sort of the, the um, you know, impulse of, of, of American ideology and that that yeah. will overcome. And I think that is articulated when, you know, essentially the formation, uh, you know, of the Republican Party with Abraham Lincoln and, you know, this civil war starts because, uh, you know, he's saying essentially in short, you can't own people, mm. right? We left England because of that. Right. If you want to own people, fine. But you've got to do that somewhere else. Yeah. It says in our Constitution you can't do it. And you know what? We started doing that, and we got to put an end to it. Mm. And you think about it, he was the most hated man mm. probably in America at that juncture. Mm. You had people in the North who had slaves mm. who said, you know, I run my whole, I've run right. my whole my life. My whole business through, is through this. How you this. can't do this. He says, well, you know what? Like it or not, this is what's written here. We left England for this. Uh-huh. If we own people, then we're just like England. Mm. And so then the South said, all right, well, you know what? We're seceding from the nation. He says, yeah. that's fine, but you, you can't take this land with you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you want to go back to England, yeah. you can do that, right? But yeah. you can't take this land with it. And we see a lot of this, you know, sort of, uh, the, the, there's this, there is this type of thing occurring, you know, where mm. people are saying, I want it this way. I want it my way. I want it the way that works for me. Whether it's, it's conservative or liberal is not relevant. Uh, What's important is that people yeah. are saying, I want it my way. What people need to say, in other words, what people ought to say, if there is a solution, is for people who are both conservative and liberal to, to say, forget what I want. Let's build upon what's effective. Mm. Let's build upon what our ideals are that are, we have in common. And maybe that means me not having the best seat at the table. Maybe mm. that means me not liking everything. When people uh-huh. can do that, that's really hopeful. Yeah. 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 Um, I, there is absolutely, of course. And I think that that's you know, what it dovetails back into you know, our conversation starts about media. Because I think that's the, the fragmentation that occurs through media because it is all subjective. It, it's not objective. That's the danger because it's not a letting people make original decisions mm. because they're looking at maps and all the maps are just random. Mm. The maps are changing every day and they're not describing what's actually going on. Yeah. They're describing just random, yeah. <laughs> impulsive stuff. The hopeful part is that people are going more and more to the source. You know, I uh-huh. want to know what everyone's saying. And I follow all sorts of people on social media. I don't use it very much, but mm. I follow people I like and I don't like, people I respect and I don't respect because I want to know. If Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or George Bush or Donald Trump or Colin Kaepernick or some person in media says something, I don't want to read it secondhand. I want to go and look exactly what they're saying. And that's helpful to form an opinion. Yes. Um, it's it's very helpful and important, mm-hmm. you know. 
And, but beca- and because of that, it, it is important to be re- take responsibility for what we put out there. Yes. You take that responsibility, and I take that responsibility. And I think people are starting to say, holy smokes, I need to take more responsibility. I need to think before I, before I yeah. re- re- react, so assertively, you know, right? I, <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> Not everyone, but, you know, some people. No, but um, I think, you know, that's shit. That's the that's the grand scale of human consciousness right there, you know. Yes, the to the, you know, to the point I think that the <clears throat> within the fabric of of American ideology is this uh sense of 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 freedom and liberation. Mm. And I think what's hard for people is, right now is to see um you know, people not hating the aspects of cruelty and close-mindedness, but hating America, mm. and I think that's that's a challenge. You know, that that's a challenge. You know, I mean, this is an amazing place to live. Yeah, and we are so fortunate. Uh, we are so fortunate to to You're burn the flag, let's say, of a of a <clears throat> of a country. I've never been nationalistic. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm not from here. If I went to China, you know, and and, and China just declared law across Hong Kong as well. So <clears throat> it's, and it's retroactive that you could go to, you could fly, we could fly to Hong Kong now and they could look at something on your social media from five years ago that they don't like and they could put you in jail without uh, any type of hearing and for life and you're gone, done, that's it. That's pretty intense, yeah? So I feel fortunate to be here. What does that mean? It doesn't mean I'm against people hating or being upset at the history of America. America has a ridiculous, oppressive, hardcore history of slavery like the rest of the world. Mm. I'm all about solving that. Mm. I'm not all about hating on America to solve right. that. That doesn't help. <laughs> that doesn't help. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that happening. Yeah, look how far we've come, you know. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, Mount Rushmore. Sure, the the history, let's say, you know, we go into the, the, the BLM right. situation. And I, you know, this is a, a statement that um, is of the highest hopes and ideologies. Black Lives Matter, of course. Right. Beautiful. Love it. When it gets hijacked with other right. manip- when, with other uh, with other uh, agendas, that's dangerous. Mm. When anything gets hijacked, mm. so you look at we look at like you know the, the history of, of you know the, the Mount Rushmore thing. I'm saying, all right, this person ought to not be on there. Well, Barack Obama didn't tear down Mount Rushmore because it's a, a representation of where we were and how far we've come. Mm-hmm. He didn't build a, a Mount Rushmore, nor did he tear it down because those men, as imperfect as they were, paved the way for him to become president. Uh. Yeah, absolutely. And if you know, I, we go to Rome, should we tear down the Colosseum because it was built by slaves? Mm. Should we then tear down the pyramids because... Mm. They were built by. I mean, you know, in other wow. words, what's the you know the 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 power of, of where does of, this end? Yeah, the power of, of I'm not for cancel culture, i.e., uh-huh. yeah, the, the power yeah. of 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 growth is to look back and say, look how far we've come. Yeah, you know, we want to make something into a museum. We want to change the way it's looked at. Fine, we want to erase. Uh, you know, mom comes home, dad comes home, 
dad hits mom, let's forget that ever happened? No, let's remember that yeah. happened. Yeah. You know? And let's build on that. Can mom and dad stay together? Maybe they can, maybe they can't. Uh-huh. You know, let's take it, let's look at the situation. Mom comes home, dad comes home. Mom cheats on dad. Let's pretend that never happened or let's look at it and say, yeah. do we move forward as a family or do we not? Yeah. You know, and, and what is at stake here? Is it going to hurt? Yeah, yeah. That's the process of yeah. life. When a baby is born, the room, you know, rips open. There's blood. There's pain. It's, you know, quite probably, according to Testament, the most painful thing a human being can experience. And yet. And it's also the most the, incredible most, experience. The most beautiful. Yeah. Yes. And it's that pain that ties us together. It's that pain that that bonds the mother to the child. And mm. so let's look at this pain and instead of fighting it or denying it, whatever the thing is. Mm. Culture, I'm just, you know, just citing one example. Here. Dude, it's so, mm. that's so on point. And this is part of this thing I'm writing currently. Um, you know, we've gotten into this habit, maybe in America. I, I, I keep coming back to America because I've never been to Europe Unfortunately, maybe never will at this stage. <laughs> but, um, you know, it feels as though American, current American culture has been built on or at least has come to this point where we are very, we run away from our pain and we run away from the darkness and the cancel culture like you're talking about and those very real microcosms of occurrence in the family household of you know uh, domestic violence or adultery you know where parent you know mother and father cheat on one another or hit one another or whatever it might be you know at the end of the day where does forgiveness come in how can you heal without forgiveness and acknowledgement of what's happened and what's true and what's real? And also then, like, can we explore why those things happened? And how maybe mom cheated on dad because she has a lifetime of pain of her own that her parents, uh, you know, transferred down to her and that their parents transferred down to them and so on and so on. And you know, you get to this point where now here I am as this this individual in the in the family, and now I have my own family, and maybe I can break the chain for my daughter to change and become whole, because now we're not suppressing all of this shit. We're not suppressing the anger and the rage and the resentment and the um, whatever else comes along, you know, the, the mixed bag of emotions that happens in every human being, you're not suppressing those and you can become more whole in the, in the process of that by acknowledging the darkness and coming to terms with it and learning about where it comes from and then shining a light in it to clear it out and, uh, you know, become a more whole human being. I think it's so important not even important it's just what life is you know when you really when you're truly living and when you're truly taking responsibility for yourself I guess why does any of that even matter 
is because you then start to raise your level of consciousness and your level of understanding and awareness of your own humanity and the global humanity. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. And <clears throat> allowing people to be to feel seen. Yeah. Yes. The moment that a, that a need is acknowledged, then the need no longer oftentimes needs to be met. Yes. Yeah. You know, can I order any ice cream I want? Can I order, you know, ignore, ignore, ignore? Yeah. Let me guess. You can have any ice cream you want as much as you want. Well, you know what? I, I maybe just don't want need a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I just want to taste. Exactly. A bit. Exactly. Totally, yeah. man. Yeah. I had this. I, I want to share this with you because I think it's perfectly on point. It, it was a bit of a breakthrough for me. You know, coming out of my life in football, I went into to football to achieve this, this dream of making it to the NFL. And I wanted to be this gladiator. And I wanted to be this warrior that was feared by the world. Because of all of my childhood shit, my childhood trauma being, you know, raised in a household filled with alcoholism and dysfunctionality and parents got divorced and a lot of pain as a little boy. I had a lot of anger and football became this vehicle for me to rectify that. And so from the time I stepped on the football field at about 13 years old, Everything I did, ate, slept, dreamt, carried myself was all about achieving this dream of playing in the NFL. I get there after years, 12, 12 years of nonstop hard work and dedication and discipline and visualization and manifestation, I get there. And now having you know achieved this dream now making all the money i could have possibly dreamt of having all the access etc you know i found myself completely miserable still because there was this god-sized hole i still wasn't enough for myself having achieved all of that i was like now what you know i got here and now there's nothing here you know it's i'm the same i'm still i'm still ebb i'm still the same person i was when I dreamt about it when I was eight years old, you know. Um, and through that, you know, I would say that from the time I was very little, I was very conscious of who I was and having this blueprint of my destiny and what I'm supposed to do with my life and making a positive impact on the world. But through my experience in football, I really lost sight of a lot of that. And I lost sight of what was most important in that. And so through that experience in football, I made a lot of really bad decisions. You know, I made a lot of, um, you know, mistakes that I had to make amends for with my wife and my family. And <clears throat> so coming out of my football career, much of my life has been about healing, it's been about coming to terms with who I am and the truth of me um, and what I want to do here. Why was I saying this? Um, so. The power of forgiveness. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that brings me to this, this moment, you know, and through that process, you know, I've done it all. I've, I've been with master healer body workers. I've, you know, done ayahuasca ceremonies and I've done deep therapy and all of it, man, just to, because my whole life from the time I was a child has been 
seeking out wholeness or completeness of myself. This thing that's Eben. How do I get to achieve the highest greatness version of this being that I've come into this world in? And so, throughout this coronavirus shit, I've had the most... (laughs) I mean, I don't even know what to call it, dude. You know? Like, it seems, you know, it seems just I'm giving it too much credit to say that this has been a lockdown because, honestly, we played the game in our house. We played the game for the first month or so, whatever it was, when L.A. was like, let's do a stay-at-home, quarantine, you know, self-isolate until April 14th. And then April 14th came, and my family and I were like, all right. We're going to start living again, you know. We we did our part in flattening the curve. So we're going to get out there. We're going to start going to the beach again. We're going to start living. We're going to invite friends over who are willing to come and, and gather, you know, because it sort of dropped this veil on everyone's beliefs about health and who they are and how they are and how they interact and how much fear people are living under. But through this experience, I've had the most intense dreams. My dreams, I was talking to my, actually, I was talking to my therapist last weekend about it. And he's like, have you ever had lucid dreams? And I was like, I think every dream I've had, which has been just about every night for the last eight months, has been a lucid dream. Like, I'm almost sleeping with one eye open. You know, and it's, it's, I'm somewhere between reality and a dream state. You know, I'm there. And last week, I had this insanely intense dream of gathering armies. And um, in the beginning half of the dream, I was gathering this army and we were securing this, this hidden location so that we couldn't be seen by the opposing army. And I was making sure we were in this little clearing in this forest and like getting everybody set and up on a hill. And it was like, okay, we're safe here. And then all of a sudden my perspective flipped and I was on the other army. Mm -hmm. I was a part of the other army, which is interesting as well, you know, because I'm also doing this dance of wearing the shoes of everyone I come into contact with, you know. So, and I realize in this other perspective of this other army, fuck we could see the other army you know (laughs) oh shit and then i woke up and i was in that dream man i was feeling all of the intense emotions and sensations of preparing for battle the fear the excitement that rage the fucking passion and um and i woke up a little bit rattled you know and my most of my dreams have been to some extent like that. Like, I feel like I've been preparing for war, you know. If you could have one chance, yeah. just one chance <laughs> to come back here and tell the virus. <laughs> yeah, exactly, dude. It will take your life, but it will never take your freedom. <laughs> exactly, dude. Exactly. That's how I feel, man. Like Mel Gibson and fucking Braveheart. I'm ready to paint my face. Um, but what keeps coming to me, first of all, is... This life is about putting the sword down. Hmm. But I woke up that morning, and every morning I meditate. And 
I sat down, I went to meditate, and I'm a little shook, but I'm like, you know what, I'm good. I'm going to just get into this breathing. And I start meditating, and about five minutes in, I drop in pretty fast. All of a sudden, these two aspects of myself emerge. And one to my right was this, this, this part of myself who's been here forever, this savage fucking warrior wild man ready to swing a battle axe in the, the next fucking person he comes into contact with. And I looked at him and I saw him and he's fucking ferocious and nasty and he scares me a little, this aspect of myself. And then to my left came this terrified little boy that's been there forever. And I looked to the right to this ferocious warrior and I patted him on the head and I said, thank you for being here. Thank you. Because I know with you here, we are always protected. And then I took, I looked at the little boy and I took his hand and I said, you know what, man, it's going to be okay. We're going to be safe. I'm going to take care of you. And in that moment, dude, I had this incredible release because for the, maybe for the first time in my life, and this is a practice of mine. I just allowed these two aspects of myself to be there and I gave them attention. And I didn't shun them. I didn't push them away. Mm -hmm. I didn't send them back. I didn't say, no, you can't be here. I just allowed them to be there and thank them. And I can't really explain how profound it was Mm -hmm. to just allow that to be there. And we all have that, you know. And then when you take it outside of yourself, all of these characters exist outside of us as well. And it's like, what happens if you start to acknowledge the person saying, can I have that ice cream? Can I have that ice cream? What happens when you just acknowledge people and you start to listen and you start to accept and you start to allow humanity to happen? Mm. It's like, and you stop suppressing and oppressing and shunning and judging. It's like, man, the, the fucking pressure is just taken out of it all it's a beautiful dream and um it's grounded in the way that you show up in the world having that um respect for all these aspects of yourself is the first step to having forgiveness and respect for all those aspects of others right we're just humans we can forgive one another and for me i as a kid looked at the people who were these great leaders in the world and they all had that strength this power of forgiveness Mm. like people talk about Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, etc., MLK, all these people, incredible at forgiving. Yeah. So I said, all right, that's important. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's a requisite for me. So yeah. I looked at it from myself, and you think of that, you know, we grow up as kids, and we have a, oftentimes a challenge with a parent, mm. you know, or both parents, you know, and then at some juncture, we say, well, whatever. Two people got together, they had sex, I came out, so what? <laughs> they're just people. So what if they're this, that, or the other? So what if they're a raging, whatever the, f- yeah. yeah, right? So what? I'm thankful to be here. This is good. I like this life. It's yeah. cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't need to be here forever, but I'm happy to be here right now. Yeah. So I'm going to forgive those people, yeah. my parents, for whatever the, th- whatever the thing is. You know? yeah. And so I went through that, and that was my first interest yeah, in psychology. But what was interesting is that in the same way that you talk about healing your own thing you know, to, make your, you know, to, to bring this sort of love and, and, and holistic uh, integrity to your own family, uh, to the history you know, that starts obviously with the history of your with your own family that you grew up in and the family that you've created today. And then also, you know, always again and again and again with your own, with with ourselves, you know, with our own selves that you do. 
for me, it was like I found that to be such a powerful tool, forgiveness, that it was so easy. In other words, that I don't want to be run over, but like I've been in, you know, I've had good relationships yeah, with women and I've had long-term relationships. I happen to be someone who's interested in being with one woman. Uh-huh. That's, I like that. I'm not a dater. I don't go out to uh-huh. bars. I don't like to hook up. I like to talk. I like to flirt. I like human beings. Uh-huh. You know, I carry a lot of uh, erotic energy, but I'm mm-hmm. not interested in screwing a million people. It's never been my interest. It's just the way I'm built. So, you know, I've been in a relationship <clears throat> in this last relationship that I was in a while back. You know, this woman was just hooked on lying. She was hooked on lying. I didn't see it going in. Mm. You know, and then she told me she was hooked on Adderall. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. this woman. Yeah. yeah. And she cheated and the whole thing, you yeah. know. And I, and I said, like, all right, the first step is to say, all right, this fucking hurts, right? The second step is to say, it's not about me. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah. It's totally not personal. It's like my parents. I got together, they had sex, I came out, so what? <laughs> so it hurts, but the moment I was able to say, look, it's okay. Like, I forgive you. Yeah, I forgive you. That's all of a sudden liberating for me yes. and liberating for the other person. Yes. And then we're able to create this bond. You know, we're able to create this bond. That is such a hard step to take for an individual. And it takes time. Somebody has to go through, you know, as we evolve as kids, we have to be um, upset. We have to be angry. We have to be all those things. The denial is it before we can have acceptance and then forgiveness. So mm. it just takes time. And sometimes our responsibility as, you know, who for most of the audience, for most of the people listening to this, are at this place of being able to forgive. But mm. the next stage is also saying, all right, it's going to take time for other people mm. to need to forgive. So in other words, if someone's yelling at me because they're misconstruing something I'm saying, like I'm sure from this discussion alone, someone will say, wait a second, who are you really for yeah. in the prison? It doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't yeah. matter. Who cares? You know what I mean? It's not about that. Yeah. You know, it's not about what do you believe, this, that, that. It's about the point of this whole thing, whether it's about shutdown or mask or presidential campaign or whatever the thing is. It's about grace, not force. Mm. Yeah. When, yeah. When people are forceful about things. Yeah. You know, then there is, you know, forcefulness is indicative of denial. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. We're not aware Absolutely. of those things. You know, in other words, we have to cling on to something so severely. Yes. Because we are afraid of the alternative. Yeah. And people, it, you know, it's like, you know, in 2000, uh, you know, September 11th, mm. um, this is something that occurs as seen but there are foul hands at play just like in the assassination of JFK yes this man shoots JFK but there are a lot of people had to turn their backs Mm. to allow that to happen Mm. you know there are a lot of forces that want that guy shot Mm. right just like in you know September 11th I am not into conspiracy but of course did did 10 uneducated guys get on a few planes and fly them into the most important buildings in the world within a period of three hours and some of those like into the Pentagon it's not even photographed no (laughs) that's insane somebody had to turn their back somewhere somebody had to no to the degree that you believe that that was an inside job is up to you it doesn't matter that's not my statement that's not what's important to me what's important is that it is more scary for us to accept that there is foul play within our own family mm. than to buy into something that is ridiculous and external. Mm. Yeah. 
In other words, if I'm a child and I come home and I say, well, there's n- something's not good with my parents, you know, my mother is cheating or something like this, my father is cheating or something like this, we will go through any lengths and every kid will say, ah, I think your dad was with another woman or your mom was with another woman or whatever the situation is. The child will go through any length to deny that. Say, no, it's whatever the thing is yeah. because it's too scary to believe that it's comes yeah. from inside. And that's what's occurring now and the media uses that. Mm. You know, the media uses that. And, and <clears throat> again, to lean out of conspiracy, media doesn't use that as a, min, as a mechanism to drive manipulation for a certain outcome. Media is just beholden to companies. Mm. Yes. Right? When yes. we click on something, money's being made. Mm-hmm. Don't click on shit. <laughs> Don't click on it. <laughs> you know? Don't yeah. click on it. Yeah. You know? And it's starting to happen. People are starting to unclick. Mm. People are starting to unclick, and, and that is hopeful. Yes. Yeah, that is absolutely hopeful. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hope. I see a lot of light out there, man. Um, you, know, the, 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 you know, the power of what you're saying of, of um, perspective and this dream that you had about being in both armies, you know, and seeing both aspects ultimately, yeah. you know, of yourself, you know, and both evolving aspects of yourself is a powerful place because that's the requisite, yeah, for forgiveness, mm. you know. Yeah. And it's the difference between nice and kind, mm. yeah. yeah, you know, compassion, uh, you know, is not always a warm hug. Compassion is oftentimes something that's very, very, very hard to stomach. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, that's what we have to step into. Yeah. Uh. <sighs> do you have Do you have time? Yeah, you're cool. Yeah, we can break this up into two or three. Yeah, dude. Yeah, no, I'm I'm good. This is we this covered is like one. Dude, we could put that as one, and then that's a whole episode, totally. But I want to talk to you more about. Yeah. I want to talk to you about your story. is so interesting, man. You're such a fascinating dude. You know, like me, I think that you know people see us, and you get stereotyped as this big tough guy, but there's a lot of fucking soul, and there's a lot of very i don't even really want to use the word intelligence but just as a term there's a very high level of intelligence and intuitive understanding about the world how did you get to this place and i because i want to get into this film that you you adapted the book into a screenplay and then you directed and you fucking produced it and i mean that's a feat in itself And I'd also like to, in that, I'd like to talk about in this interesting realm we find ourselves in of, um, you know, individuals creating their own content and creating their own art and what that's shifting. Like you were saying earlier about how, you know, you can only control so much information now, you know, and it's very difficult. People can... Because we all have access to this thing called the internet and we all have access to multiple platforms to put our expressions of our humanity and our ideas out there into the world, how important that is for artists in this new day and age. So let's start with, where'd you come from, dude? Because <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Born in England. Came to the U.S., grew up in Texas. So you've got this really interesting balance of uh, intellectualism with fucking like brawn, you know, cowboy (laughs) energy. 
Because I love that, dude. You know? It's mutual, man. Yeah. You're the same. You're the same. You're the same. It's good to be at the table with you, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. It's very, you know, man, shit out there is fucking crazy. And if you're, if you read any news, like you've been saying, yeah. just to kind of cap that topic, you know, if you read any news, you're like, Jesus Christ, the world is, is on fire. <laughs> but then you step outside and you're like, oh, mm. no, life is still happening. Yeah. You know, yeah. the sun is shining, the birds are yeah. chirping, people are out walking their dogs, people are yeah. trying to get on with life, living. Maybe it's not as bad as it seems. Yeah. This friend of mine came from <clears throat> Moscow and he uh, started, he moved to Burbank and he started a news station out here because he was finding that people in Russia want to know what was going on in America and they were out of touch, just like we had this t- discussion about the New York Times being out of touch that they, they had this sense of what was going on in America that was totally not the terrain. And <laughs> so he wanted to report what was actually going on here on all levels. I right? love that. And he's like got this, this following. is growing and it's huge, right? So absolutely. You get these calls from all over the world and you say, no, no, no. Like, I, I don't, can't tell you how many, you know, the number of people, like people are like, oh my God, is it just like race riots? And no. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know exactly. I mean? like, No, no, no. You don't get it. Like, like you, you know. Is it on, on fire? Yeah. Like, oh, I don't know. You know, it's hard to find. I mean, the minority of the future is anybody who's one ethnicity, right? I yeah. mean, everybody's mixed now. Yeah. And I, you know, did a lot of time, part-time growing up in Hawaii. And uh. all my friends out there, nobody is one ethnicity. Uh-huh. Nobody. Yeah. People are Filipino, Hawaiian, black, American, Indian, yeah. white. Samoan. I mean, it's a, Samoan, Chinese, yeah. Tongan. Is, yeah. You can't, you, yeah. know, you can't, you can't run into So in Hawaii, you know, I talked to my friends out there and they're like, What? <laughs> they don't even understand the whole thing. Yeah. They're like, what? Yeah. I get it. And I, you know, my brother and I, we went to the summer school growing up there where we were the only white kids at the school. Oh, interesting. You know, the only ones, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. We didn't have any reflection on that because mm-hmm. we didn't know. You know, yeah. that was just how we grew up and in the neighborhood we lived in. We were the only white kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. I've been beaten down on the street and woken up with black eye. You know, I've been beat uh, up. And that's good. For, did it, I enjoy uh, it? No. Was I angry at any particular ethnicity for that experience? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Because I have so many friends that I loved yeah. who were every ethnicity. Yeah. Asian, black, white, Chinese, Filipino, Samoan, Tongan, white, etc. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Somebody's asshole. Yeah. So what? <laughs> so what? Let's yeah. move forward together. Yeah. But... Every kid should get beat up at some <laughs> juncture true, just man. to have a certain amount of personal responsibility in the way that they show up in the world going forward. Definitely. It also lets you say, hey, you know what? Getting knocked out isn't so bad. Yeah. It's like you see two fighters get in the ring, and there's a little anxiety when you get in the uh-huh. ring right at first. You're yeah. like, you want to get hit. You know? yeah. you, you just like, you just but after a while, you just want that first hit yeah, to happen. Yeah, you need to get the first hit. Once you get clocked, and you're yeah. like... Oh, okay, it's not so bad. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's how it was for me in football, man. 100%. I got to get the fucking first you get hit. Rocked. Yeah. Then you're like, all right, cuts the like, edge. All right, let's roll. <laughs> it cuts the edge. A yeah. Bit. And it's interesting, you know, that is the camaraderie, right? That we talk about, like that you see in in, in gyms or athletic communities, mm. whether it's rolling jujitsu or fighting or boxing or sparring or or, or lifting weights or whatever. The thing yeah. is that there is this camaraderie. You go into a gym, and mm. it doesn't matter who, how old, how in shape, you know what somebody looks like, none of it matters. Yeah. You go in there, there's this camaraderie of we're all trying to be our best and push our best and give our best. And that feels good. And that's the addiction that people feel when they go into a gym or dojo or whatever the thing is. It's this thing, we're all here together to do our best. Let's support one another in that. And there's yeah. a natural camaraderie that shows up there that's epic. <coughs> right? Definitely. 
Um, <clears throat> I was born in Oxford, England, and my mother's British, my grandfather's British, all the way back. Mm. And my grandfather, interestingly enough, dovetailing back into the early conversation, was a professor of South African history at Yale and was a, an outspoken opponent of apartheid mm. and was... Um, oh, uh, I read that, yeah. You know, was... Um, uh, um, uh, Desmond Tutu spoke... Justice. Desmond Tutu spoke highly of him, saying that his insight into apartheid was um, um, unique and mm. um, and, um, and interesting and eloquent. And <clears throat> so, my mother—that's how British all the way back—and then my father, um, Russian Jewish heritage, um, but he is from Los Angeles. But we were in England, and then he got a job teaching comparative religions in Hawaii with a specialty in India. So he was always, in, in, oftentimes, in India when I was a kid, so that in Indian iconography and, and mythology yeah. had a big impact on me. So um, interesting. I had a similar, no, nobody academic, but my mom was just a lifetime yogi. You know, we've had Ganesh and Shiva and Vishnu and all, and I mean, right here, God of wind right there. <laughs> so, you know, it's very much been a part of my upbringing as well. So go ahead. My step, my mother married my stepfather when I was four or five, mm. and he lived in South Texas. Mm. And so he was the opposite of uh, everything that I experienced in Hawaii. <laughs> and so I was part time in Texas, part time in Hawaii. So Hawaii was just like sex, drugs, rock and roll, the ocean, you know, yeah. all this life, right? India, etc. And then Texas was hunting fishing mm. and discipline just uh, relentless wow. work ethic and discipline you know we shot and killed animals and used uh. every part of the animal the skin and the flesh and everything you wow. know my stepfather had great respect for the land love uh, that <clears throat> it was beautiful and i was very fortunate to um have that experience um and and, and hugely different ideologies between those between those cultures but so many ironic similarities yeah so yeah and then I <clears throat> came to Los Angeles in about 2000. Okay. Um, um, and in there, how old are you? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> look at, look at, look at. It's 39 wow, from here dude. on out. Wow. Once you hit 39, that's, that's, just, that's it. It's only 39 from here on out. Because I noticed that you're 39 too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and it, well, you know, it's an interesting question. Because... I Not never. I, the reason no, no, it doesn't, right? Of course, it yeah, doesn't. Yeah. The reason I, the reason it doesn't, right? And the reason I never ask it, right? Or the reason it doesn't, you know, th that I respond to it sort of uh, abstractly is because I started in. I was in boarding school, uh -huh. and then uh, I was in grade school. I was in this uh, like mostly girls' school. Mostly girls were at the school. I was in like first through fifth grade. Then I was in military school, which was all boys. Mm. I was in eighth grade, and then I was between. I started going to college at University of Hawaii when I was fourteen, and I was at the same time in boarding school in Connecticut. So oh, I was sitting shit. in, I was sitting in on my father's class of comparative religions, mostly about most of it about India, since I was two. So by the time I was like twelve, I was like, "Look, I got to sit on a, in on other classes because I can teach this class now because uh -huh. I've been sitting in on it my whole yeah. life, right?" Yeah. So I was like, I started sitting on psychology, theater, etc. And so then by the time I was thirteen or fourteen, I said, "I want to get 
start getting credit, you know. So I, I got letters of recommendation for auditing these classes. So when I was 14 or 15, I enrolled in University of Hawaii. So I started going to college. So I was in college the same time when I would visit my father, and then I was in boarding school during the year. So I was always the youngest person in the room. So when I was 14, I, I had a crush on this girl at University of Hawaii, and she oh was like 21, God. right? Yeah. And at that age, that's a big difference, yeah, you know? Sure. And I remember we were paired together in some theater class or something, and then afterwards, like, we were hanging out. We went to the beach, you know, and she goes, you know, I'm so glad I met you because I look so young, right? She goes, and you look really young, too. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, look, I'm 21. How old are you? And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, I didn't want to say I never I, I wasn't going to lie but I never was going to say it unless she asked yeah. me point blank and she was like oh, and the, the day she asked me I was like I'm 14 oh. she was like what yeah. she goes that's crazy you're like yeah. a, you, you know she's and um, so anyways I, I, I just that's think so that, funny yeah I just think that you know living outside those kind of those kinds of um, you know paradigms just because I was also like even when I was 18 a good friend of mine uh, was in AA and I became very close friends. We spent sort of three or four Christmases together. Um, my dear friend TJ and Mark, and um, uh, you know he, I think was about forty. I was eighteen, and my friend TJ was in his mid late twenties or something like this. And so I was going to all these AA meetings with these guys. I was not an AA. Uh, I was debaucherous, yeah. indulgent, yeah. wild son of a bitch. Yeah. But they were, and that interested me. I grew up in AA meetings. Amazing, right? Yeah, and some amazing. of the greatest public speakers. Yeah, in AA, oh, some incredible best. stories, right? The best. And that was what attracted me to that, you know. And I was uh, felt fortunate that I wasn't in it, but I was able to go with these guys who were, you know, my friend had been a few years, and this other guy was a real vet, you know, in uh, AA. And, and what I found is that the stories were just so, none of them were, none of them, uh, none of the progress was indicative of any kind of track record prior to or duration. Yeah. You know, that in other words, awakening can take, you know, in this sort of Zen adage, it can take 30 years mm. or it can take three seconds. Yeah. You know, that's, totally. that's awakening. Yeah. You know? And then, it, yeah. So. Ah, it's so interesting, man. No wonder I feel like you're my brother, dude. Yes, you know? yes. <laughs> you know, everything you're saying, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's very similar. Uh, you know, and the, the relationship also with um, exercise, with sports, uh -huh. you know, for you, football, yeah. you know, and for me, just hardcore pushing the physical limits yeah. of what was possible yeah. for me. Um, as a mechanism for catharsis mm. was invaluable for me. And I'm, you know, when I moved to LA, I was very fortunate. I shot my first magazine cover. It was for Men's Fitness in April of 2000. So when you moved to LA, yeah. was that in search of anything? Like, why'd you come here? Yeah, I was... Um, I had this big Coke deal going down. <laughs> and it was a federal offense to do it in Hawaii. Oh, <laughs> get, you know, because you had to ship it. No, I, uh, I, um, I uh, was in Hawaii and, you know, I was writing poetry and lyrics and, you know, and I was working sometimes as an actor on Japanese shows and Japanese commercials and, you know, periodic. And then it was like I realized that I had hit the ceiling there of what I uh -huh. could do there, that I needed greater capacities for collaboration. And I listened to my intuition uh -huh. also. And I was in love at the time with a girl, and she was visiting me there, and she lived in Chicago, and she said, okay, I'll come try it out in Los Angeles with you. Will you come stay in Chicago with me for a few months, three months, two months, whatever, before? I said, yes. Um, and I just knew it. I felt it. I felt, in other words, uh -huh. Hawaii 
is the most amazing place yeah. to be. It's as good as yeah. any other place in the world. Yeah. You know, just it's epic. Yeah, it's amazing. In order for me to cultivate aspects within myself, it required something else. Uh-huh. You know, I didn't want to yeah. leave there, but yeah. I knew I needed to. Uh-huh. I didn't want to, but I knew I needed to. Like the tattoo on your arm. This loyalty to destiny, yes. yeah, requires yes. sometimes to find that map. Requires sometimes closing the eyes and going. Yeah. So, yeah, no then doubt. I came here ultimately, and then it's been. Uh, I was very focused, very disciplined. I realized when I moved here, I didn't go to any bars, I didn't go to any clubs. I would work out in the morning, I'd work out at night, and I was just ridiculously focused. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and it was. It ended up. Things caught fire. Uh-huh. It took a while, but then things started to happen uh, for me. So you got your first magazine cover. was April 2000 Men's Fitness, yeah. And then in basically in a period of like 30 months, I shot over 100 magazine covers. Jesus. You know, and it was just the right place, right time. Mm. You know, that it wouldn't have been, had it been five years earlier, it wouldn't have been able to happen. Five years, ten years later, that, that business didn't even exist anymore. Uh-huh. Right? That's so interesting. I was so fortunate, yeah. Wow. But it was also, I was doing the work. I mean, I was, I was not going to bars. I was not going to clubs. There was right. nothing wrong with that. It's just that my... I was just loving this process, yeah. you know, of exercising, pushing myself to the limit, whether it was boxing or rolling or carrying people upstairs or whatever the thing was, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, You saw it in your mind's eye. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. visualization yeah. and yeah. manifestation yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, that's so awesome, man. So, but, so with that, so you've got, you know, but under underneath all of that, you had this this line of deep intuitive spirituality and a connection with something greater than yourself. Which did that? Do you feel like that led you? Well, it all le- led you to where you're at now. But as far as meeting Ken Wilber and getting to know him and coming to this place where you wanted to make this film. You know, how did that sort of, how was that all interwoven into that? Uh, That's a great question. Um, I was interested in, I always, my highest interest vocationally and personally is as a storyteller mm. since I was mm. as, as long as I can remember yeah. I as did, a kid yeah. writing long stories etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, whether it's books or lyrics or poems or movies and I love psychology and philosophy it's most of what I've read probably and <clears throat> as a kid I was uh, loved these sort of tales from India etc I met Joseph Campbell when I was a kid. I, you know, some, of the, some of the first, you know, books I fell in love with was, you know, early on Khalil Gibran and Martin Luther King, and then afterwards, you know, Joseph Campbell and then Alan Watts. I read everything that he ever wrote and, and, and read, and then it was different. You know, You're speaking my language. Different sure. philosophers, you know, Schopenhauer, Schelling, and um, uh, Nietzsche, and um, and then I had this mad love affair essentially with Alan Watts's work. And then um, I listen to him every day. He's amazing. He's so wonderful. And then I and then I discovered Ken Wilber, and it was like it just rocked me. It was just the right moment. I had read enough philosophy and psychology, and you know what we were talking about earlier is that 
you know, he's the most widely read and translated scholastic author in America. But not a lot of people know his work because he's 30 books in 30 languages because he doesn't write for a pop audience. You can't uh -huh. just grab one of his books and pick it up. It's, there's a requisite to it. You have to have already read some psychology and philosophy. But all the smartest people in the world know who he is and are well aware of him, everybody. And we're talking from conservative to liberal to leaders of different nations, et cetera. You know, whether it's Jeb Bush or Barack Obama or um, Lana Wachowski or Anthony Robbins or Deepak Chopra or you know, Melissa Etheridge or etc. Anthony Robbins, like yes. Tony Robbins? Yeah, Tony Robbins, Serge Tankian, <laughs> etc. So from rock to music to film to politics to leaders, every one of these people will call this guy the most brilliant guy in the world. Uh-huh. In the world. Yeah. And so when I picked up his work, it just, it was coming to me from a number of different spaces. Like people were just saying, you know, yeah. you remind me of X and X. And I would say, well, who, what does X and X read? And they would say, Ken Wilbur's. They uh. say it's the most brilliant guy ever, et cetera. So finally, it was just like hit me over the head. And I was like, man. That's, that's so interesting that it yeah. came because that's what's been happening to me lately. Yes. I told you this, man. Yes. Like people have been like, Eb, have you read Ken Wilbur? I All right, think I'm coming back Ken here Wilbur. in 60 days. Uh-huh. And we're going to wrap Kate up. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah. So essentially, I was started reading this stuff. And I read a bunch of his books. And was just blown away. It mm. just changed my life. It wow. just, he was so <laughs> brilliant uh -huh. and ridiculously funny and paradoxical uh -huh. <laughs> and just off the charts. I love that. And, you know, and when he married his, when he married um, in, uh, you know, in the 80s, when his wife met him, she said that he only owned a desk chair, <laughs> a typewriter, and 4,000 books. Wow. Nothing else. And there's a picture of his setup, and he's got literally 4,000 books and a mattress on the floor and a desk chair. And that's it. I mean, this guy's reading books faster, writing books faster than I can read them, you know? So the reason, and then I, you know, fell in love with all his work, and it was just like, I, at that juncture, I was reading, I started to read other authors as well, but it was like reading him was reading a synthesis of everything. He's mm. read everything. Uh -huh. Right, and so it was like, well, why read Schopenhauer or Schelling or Hegel, or if I can just read Ken Wilber, and it's all rolled in there, uh, essentially. You yeah. know, you know, it's it's Jung and Freud. Uh -huh. It's the best of all worlds. Uh -huh. yeah? yeah, you know that he's synthesizing things mm. in such a way that's spectacular. It's all religions. Yeah. It's Christianity. It's Islam. It's it's you know Buddhism. It's Taoism. It's Hinduism. It's it's off the charts. Yeah. So I was so high on it, um, and then he wrote a book called Grace and Grit. That is one of the uh, of only a couple books that is a true story and it essentially chronicles his wife's journals, mm. and it's uh, their story of the course of five years. Mm. And that book is written uh, part by him and part by her, um, and it's just her experience of what's occurring during that five years, his experience, and then he does a psychological and spiritual sort of analysis of what's occurring, and then he also covers some of their dreams as well in that. So it's this, it's this beautiful, epic, sweeping love story. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> it's a cry your eyes out. Mm. Uh, epic love story, but ultimately about erotic, seductive, courageous, selfless, and ultimately transcendent love. Uh -huh. And when I read the book, it blew me away. And then, um, you know, I had not met Ken yet. And I looked online and I saw people in China and in Japanese and in Russian and in Spanish felt the same way about the book that they were saying this book is like my bible this book made me not afraid to fall in love again this mm. book made me not afraid of death this book made me not afraid and i thought there's something really interesting here because i was 
I, this fucking book is like a grenade. Like I <laughs> bawled my eyes out when I read it, right? But I was super, and I laughed too, but I was also super inspired mm-hmm. and full of hope. But I couldn't quite put my finger on it, you know? And ultimately it was this hope in sort of this transcendental capacity that we have that exists within ourselves that we find when we come close to mm-hmm. someone else and are able to sacrifice and give ourselves to someone else. So um, in short, how did it become film? Um, I didn't think of it as a film. At that juncture, I was working on another movie as an actor in Atlanta <clears throat> when I read that book. And I read that book late in, the, in my Ken Wilber reading. Mm. And then uh, I always wanted to meet him, and he was so hard to meet. He's so reclusive. He's been invited on like every talk show for since the early 80s. Uh-huh. And he's such an influence in the world of psychology, spirituality, and philosophy, and consciousness. He's a powerhouse, uh-huh. you know? Um, everybody respects him, you know, and I've been on the stage speaking with and sharing time and been friends with everyone from Gene Houston to Marianne Williamson and uh, Stanislav Graf and, uh, you know, uh, Michael Beckwith was at my house recently. Um, everyone admires and adores Tony Robbins, etc. And I know I've had conversations with all these people. And been acquaintances and friends, or very close friends, with many of these people. All of them in great adoration, yeah, for for Ken Wilber. But he doesn't write for a pop audience, yeah. Yeah, and he's very hard to get in touch with. You have to fly there and see him because he doesn't leave his house because he's busy writing books. You know? <laughs> he just writes. He's he just writes. He's yeah. just a machine. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So he, um, anyways, I wanted to meet him, and he's so reclusive, and like you can't get in touch with him. And it's before like before like the advent of uh, you know even Instagram, etc. And um, <laughs> so then I was like, finally, after like five years, Evan, I was like, you know what, man? It's so selfish of me that I want to meet him for me. Uh-huh. What does he care? Yeah, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I was literally in Hawaii and I, and I, I pulled it off of my desktop on my computer and I was like, you know what? I don't need to meet him. I was trying to get him, him to do an interview in my first documentary that I wrote, produced, and directed like 10 years ago called Awakening World. The trailer's everywhere online. It's a good film. Mm. Um, so... I just couldn't get in touch with him. So I moved it off my desktop. Literally 48 hours later, I got an invite to come to Colorado and do a radio show. And um, they said, oh, clearly you're influenced by Ken Wilber and you want to come on our show and talk consciousness and art and storytelling and health and et cetera and meditation. And we can introduce you to Ken Wilber. And I said, oh, come on. (laughs) The moment I stopped trying. Yeah. Of course. So I went there. We were simpatico. We sat for like several hours, and and you know, <clears throat> retrospectively, then, um, you know, or subsequently, then um, he was very kind, gave me an interview in my in my first documentary film, and um, doesn't really give interviews, and um, but trusted me, and so then after that, um, at some point, it sort of hit me that I needed to tell this story, that I needed to make this book into a film. And mm. I was working on a lot of different projects, writing, producing, directing, commercials, documentaries, other short form media, um, and had acquired different IP for different books to become feature films. But I knew, for whatever reason, this had to happen first. It was mm. like the same thing, again, like with the tattoo on your arm about the dedication and the loyalty to, to destiny, mm. that I, I it's told me I got to make it happen, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, so then I took the steps and <clears throat> acquired the rights, adapted the screenplay, uh, produced it, and directed it. It's amazing, dude. When does that, when is it premiering? That'll be out later this year. Okay. So the, the, the agenda right now, it's the film is totally done. It's in final score. 
right now, final original score. Awesome. Um, um, the Kim and Catherine Kluge are doing the score. They did the m- music for Scorsese's last two films. So Silence, mm. uh, they did. Um, beautiful, brilliant artists um, who uh, I was simpatico with, and they appreciated the material, and so we're very generous to be supportive of this film, like as is every artist that touched this film. Um, <coughs> it's about marrying it to the distributor that will support it the best. Yeah. So there I have a lot of opportunities for distribution right now. And the way the terrain is changing now in movies is that it's easy to distribute a movie now. Uh-huh. you know, But it's not necessarily an asset. Uh, if you sell your film to Netflix, for example, is the first thing on everyone's mouth, right, you know, right. on everyone's lips. It's maybe good, maybe not, but they have thousands of movies. Yeah. So it could just be buried there. So it's yeah. I- unless it's the right fit with the right distributor at the right moment, you know, in other words, this year, if if a studio has a, uh, let's say, Fox Searchlight, if they have a movie that costs $35 million, uh, or $50 million, that's a love story, then this is not going to be a good fit because uh-huh. this is a love story. Yeah. In short terms, it's a love story. But if, you know, it's it's about marrying it to the right distributor because the, there's a built-in audience for this film. Uh-huh. So the financials on this film are easy. Mm. Um, it's more of I want to be... I want to be in service uh, to the film to the best that I can possibly be. I want to give it the broadest initial audience mm. uh, that I can be. So it's uh, it'll, later this year, though. We're not going to wait too long. Cool, man. I'm stoked. Yeah, thank you. Can't wait to see it. The trailer's epic. Yeah, I, I mean, I was almost in tears just watching the trailer, honestly. Thank you, man. I, a lot of people, you know, people message me from all over the world saying that, that the teaser makes them cry. And if you're listening, you look up Grace and Grit movie. Or the website's graceandgrit.net. But I'll get, and sometimes I'll get messages like in Japanese or Russian, and I only know that they're good because of the emoji language. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll get the hearts and the cry and the smiley face. I you know? love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, it's yeah. awesome, man. Um, so if you're starting, well, like you said, there's a hundred books that are the prerequisite to getting into Ken Wilber. Mm-hmm. For me. What should I start with? No Boundary is a great first read, and it's still one of his most popular books. Okay. And it's a beautiful, and it definitely affected my meditation game. And, uh, you know, there's Ramana Maharshi is a big influence on me. For you too, then you'll jive, and that'll be, you'll consume that rapidly. And and I think that'll, that's a great one. He's he's got some of the classic, and I I keep that in the film, some of that Ramana Maharshi, Ken Wilber uh, stuff from No Boundary. Um, because he wrote that in the 80s, and it's, it's a beautiful read. The next book is A Brief History of Everything, uh. which he, which is sort of the second stage of, if you put his work into three stages, the second stage of his writing, and that's still, I think, his most popular book, or his most acclaimed. I mean, there's, there's so much brilliant work, but that mo- that book was the first book I read of his, uh-huh. um, A Brief History of Everything. And, <clears throat> I mean, it... I. It was so powerful for me mm. that I didn't. When I started reading it, I said, "This is going to command my full attention." Mm. I only had contact with one person, and I just I said, "I don't want to just read this. I'm going to rip through this with notes, mm. and I'm, if it's going to take me a day to read a chapter or a day to read a page, I'm going to take that time." In mm. other words, I'm not going to read this until I can. I'm not going to turn the page until I own the material uh-huh, on the page. I'm uh-huh. a slow reader. Yeah. 
And so I literally took, I don't know how long it was. It was a long time, man, a month or two or something to read that, a couple months maybe to read that book. And it was just like, I just, I was fortunate Mm -hmm. because I was shooting a million magazine covers and I had all these endorsement deals. Right. So I had the time. I was very lucky. to read. I was fortunate. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have anything to do anything, you know. I was making a ton of money. It was great. That's awesome. (laughs) So I could just kick back and read, which is what uh, I needed at that time. And so I would just go exercise. I would see this uh, person who I was in a relationship with, this brilliant psychologist, and she was into it. So I'd read some of it to her aloud. Mm. And um, and then when I put that book down, it just I was. Mm. So that's a brief history of everything. Nice. And then and Grace and Grit, Grace and Grit's a, a, a great read too. It's an epic love story, um, and it deals with illness. It deals with um, all the challenges and in beautiful alchemical capacities of love as well. Uh-huh. Okay. No and they just, Shambhala just released a new edition of Grace and Grit because of the movie. That's his publisher? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, for most of his books. Yeah. Wow, dude. I don't even know what to say, man. This has been fucking awesome. Awesome to hang out with you. Awesome to talk, and I'd love to do it again. Um... Is there anything before we wrap this thing up that you want to shout out or talk about or just let people know? Nah. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect, dude. That's perfect. Um, How about Instagram? Yeah, Sebastian Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, one, the digit one. Awesome. Yeah. Twitter, Sebastian Siegel. Graceandgrit.net. Yeah, graceandgrit.net. Any other websites? Just my name.com. SebastianSiegel.com. Yeah. yeah. Dude, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here, man. Oh, my I, God, I, dude. I really Can you please come again? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely. definitely. 60 days. I'm going to get some Ken Wilber cool. under my belt. We'll come back and talk about him. That's a great idea. Yeah, and then... Uh, yeah, dude. Thank you. Thank you know, the you. number of people have reached out to me just literally in the last 60 days. Mm. I mean, I had this f- friend of mine who reached out to me and says, Ken Wilber is the future. And this guy's got like four phantoms and it's got real estate all over the world. And I've known him like 15 years. We're just acquaintances. And then all of a sudden, you know, he comes to this. I do once a month. I do this sort of social guided lucid dreaming meditation. Oh, yeah. Thing. I got to come to that. September 1st. You got to come. I'm in. And. You know, he comes to one and he, he calls me after. He goes, man, you know Ken Wilber? He goes, we have to create media. He's the future. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> he says, we have to create, you know, and it's like the number of people reaching out to me now around that is really cool. Yeah, that's it's really, awesome. really, 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 really hopeful. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we're humans are in dire need of yeah. a spiritual experience or a connective experience. Something to show us that there's more to life than the materialism that we've drowned ourselves in. So it's awesome, man. I'm stoked. Stoked to have gotten to connect with you and meet you and hang out and feel like we're buddies. Um, So that's it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for joining. As always, I greatly appreciate your support and your ear. I hope you guys got a lot out of that uh, because I sure as hell did. Um, Until next time, I'm Evan Britton, and this is the Evan Flow Podcast. We're out of here. Peace.